Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Brendan here with markvetgurus.com, episode 175. February the 5th, 2021. As always, I'm here with Mark, and I think you've got some interesting bit of chit-chat to talk about. And I've got some very interesting emails I want to jump into as well. But before I do my emails, Mark, what have you been up to or what have you got to tell our listeners? Well, Brendan, I had to prepare my CV. I was I was thinking about you while I was doing it because um, – I had to prepare it for a particular job I've applied to do. I'll tell you about the job in a minute. Um, but um, but it was interesting because I had to list, you know, the usual things in a CV, your, uh, your um, uh, um, experience in a particular job, your, yes. and particularly uh, your educational qualifications and um, the publications you've made and, um, and the uh, conferences you've presented at. And the thing I noticed about my list of conference presentations was that um, they finished. There wasn't any. In, <laughs> no, no, surprisingly enough, they've happened so long ago that you've forgotten them. But they were all, uh, the vast majority of them were in the early days of the the um, UPAV group. So I think we kicked the bloody thing off in, I don't know, around 2001 or two. Um, and then conferences for six or seven years after that, I think I presented at all but one. But then from there, I've done none. I've got no, nothing, you know, whether at the AVA National Conference, the UPAV stream, uh, whether it's the UPAV conference itself, um, I've, um, I've I've got a big blank in my CV. So, although you, although you have contributed greatly to those um, during question times <laughs> as well, and I'm not I'm not being cynical here. You definitely have. So, unfortunately, it's a tricky one to list, isn't it? So, on there. So, yes, oh, and, and I think um, so. The the job I've applied for is um. The uh, McDonald's BirdLife BirdLife Australia um, are monitoring um, avian influenza. They have a program for collecting duck shit from the the uh, hunter wetlands at various locations, and they need someone adequately qualified in the job. Do you think? Do you think I'll get there? Well, you know the answer to that. It will be yes, of course, Mark. Yes, you'll be vastly overqualified for that particular position, no doubt. Have you listed me as a referee or not? I definitely have. <laughs> well, thanks for letting me know in case I get some phone calls. So I'll, I'll know. I'll speak very highly of you and your shit. So um, good luck with it, and I'm sure you'll. Um, I'm sure I'll, I'll be very disappointed if you don't get the job. <laughs> you and me both. After yes. all the trouble of <laughs> trolling out those uh, those uh, presentations from the um, early two thousands, I'll be mightily upset that that someone's more more suitably qualified than I am to collect the droppings of ducks. Anyway, you've got an email. Be, yes, and it would be fairly local to you. I, um, yes, the, 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 the faces. Yeah. They're looking at. Um, well, one of the beautiful things about our area is that um, it's on the. Uh, many of the birds that come from um, Siberia, many birds will breed in Siberia and fly down to various locations. The Hunter Estuary is one of their favoured stopping points on the East Asia Flyway, one of their destinations. And so it's definitely a good um, you know, spot to screen the droppings of these birds for some of the infectious diseases that might be carried by. Funnily enough, Brendan, the funny thing about this is that um, – it's it's obviously a real um, hole in our quarantine system that these yes. millions of birds fly up to um, Siberia, land in many places in East Asia, um, and not that I'm casting any aspersions, but there are locations in that part of the world that might not have the same level of disease control that we are 
luckily able to maintain here in Australia. And then they fly straight down here on a reg annual basis. And and uh, and it's somewhat surprising that they don't transmit um, more disease. So it's a good area of research to begin looking at, um, I reckon. But um, yeah, uh, the, the Hunter Valley is uh, the Hunter estuary is a preferred location so where i go and do a bit of bird watching i can um take a second to collect a couple of droppings that are on the paths and byways that i wander along now i see an excuse to be out there with your camera taking <laughs> pictures of birds you've seen straight through me i hope that i hope the um the, the, the committee selection committee. committee can't see that <laughs> yes Yes, that they can see through your your feces. Well, my yeah, email. It, it's amazing, mate. We had a, a very, very um, quick and multiple responses to my moth problem. Oh, excellent! I email from several listeners, and I've just picked out a few of them, Mark, and I think you might find interest in there. One was one was a very practical one. It was suggesting that the way to prevent the moths and my clothes being eaten by the moths, and for those listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, go back to the last episode, one seventy four. Um, is putting all your clothes into Ziploc bags, Mark, into plastic Ziploc bags. Mm, I like it. Very practical approach, I think, but no, it's not happening. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's not happening, but you know who you are who who suggested that. Um, Very, very practical and very sensible approach to that, but... um, I'm not that I'm organised, but I'm not that organised, and I don't see that happening, unfortunately. But I can see that that would cure it. And I did note when I was doing my little internet search about fixing the problem of moths eating your clothes in your drawers next to you in your bedroom that um, that was one of the options, or the using those you know the ones where you pump it and you suck all the air out, those sort of ones, and that. So that was one. The other one was a probably a little bit more practical, and a little bit similar to what I've done, and that was a, a product that you could purchase online that was a bit like one of those wheat heat sacks that instead of heating it up and using it for you know a sore neck or whatever, that you infuse it with some some um, essential oils, Mark. So you dribble some essential oils into it, and then you put the little the little sack. I think it looks like a little animal or something. You can get various types and you put that little cloth sort of wheat sack or whatever's inside it into your drawers and it helps deter the insects mark so i think that was a pretty good idea don't you i like it and you're a you're an essential oil sort of guy so <laughs> i'm essential i'm essential i don't know about oils um and the last one mark um and perhaps i'll, I'll leave it at this last one that's just why don't i wear spandex everywhere <laughs> Well, I think you do. It's just not on the outside. <laughs> That's right, because they don't attack the spandex. So I thought that was a good one. Um, so there you go. So keep the suggestions coming, and I will. I need to go through my my drawers again and have a look. In fact, I'm just looking now. The the one I've got I'm wearing at the moment does have a, several holes in it, but it's one of my favourite little t-shirts. So I'm going to keep using it. I'm not going to let those moths get away with it, Mark. They're just adding character to your clothes, Brendan. <laughs> That's right. So there you go. That's um, the email. So email um, vetgurus at gmail.com. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, vetgurus.com is a place to go and you can do a search for all our previous episodes and also look at our sponsors, our fantastic sponsors, and we'll have an, an announcement about them next week. And that's about it, Mark, for, for what I've got. You wanted to review a film, didn't you? So, well, And I, I have to... I have got around to watching this film So, um, because you suggested I watch it. And it's a bit of a um, – well, I'll let you introduce it and chat about it. Well, you know, my of my many flaws, uh, one of them is that I probably spent just a tad too much time on social media. Um, and – for a person who has a whole heap of other responsibilities, uh, devoting any significant slab of time to that particular endeavour um, might not be the most productive. And so I, I, a few friends of mine suggested that I might 
have a look at uh, a Netflix documentary, um, the the uh, the social dilemma, um, and they warned me that I might, well, that I might be scared by the time I um I uh, had a look at the entire movie, um, and it, it is a movie that um well movie documentary it um it presents several uh, members or ex members of of what you would think of as the Silicon Valley community, people involved at relatively uh, critical points in various social media or IT companies. Um, and yeah, they- so I think it was like some of the founders of, of Twitter and the original employees of Facebook, et cetera, wasn't it? Yeah, some of the people that were involved in, in maybe even some of the people involved in some of the projects that, you know, were driving – um, marketing and, exactly, and exactly. income. Yep. Um, and it's these people um, certainly saw, uh, you know, a problem develop in the work that they were doing and have sort of dropped out. And the, the, the lead, um, the person who was the lead in it, whose name escapes me just at the moment, um, but they, they, they were almost like the, you know, the counterculture leader. They were talking about the ways that social media damage could be ameliorated, and I did find it interesting the way that um, uh, that you know it's all about the bucks. It's all about uh, um, you know us as eyes on a screen of the product being sold to advertisers and and a whole range of quite sophisticated and complicated and uh well un you know uh unknown to the viewer techniques are used to draw eyes back to their platform repeatedly um the alert system the notification system all those sorts of things um and then there were some aspects to it brendan where they talked about um you know brain development and um, and social development of young people and the way that the, their relationships are changing um, and uh, how healthy or unhealthy that might be and how um, companies might even manipulate some aspects of those relationships to um, improve the number of eyeballs that are on their platform. So I found it a bit disconcerting. What did you find when you looked at it? Yeah, I suppose I wasn't that surprised because I I think having a bit of a tech bias with certain things, I don't think there was anything what I thought was new to me, so it didn't particularly surprise me. Um, depressing, but it didn't particularly surprise me. I mean, the the privacy bit is always the, the part that I um, sort of concentrate on and the fact that they're constantly data mining and, and grabbing all the info and presenting you with ads that are related to any pages you've clicked on, etc. Um, but yeah, it is a bit, I think it's a bit depressing when you look at the the youngsters today, Mark, and I'm talking to my girls that, that sit on their phones or, or look at their phones for many, many hours every day. And they're basically, even when they're up and around and, and getting ready to have breakfast and dinner and lunch and that they want to keep checking their phones and that's part of the the addiction of it isn't it mark and the way that they and they spoke a bit about this didn't they some of those those um, people that they the whole aim is to to make you come back for more and to 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 trick you into clicking again and to feel like you're missing out by not checking your facebook feed or your or your um, instagram feed etc um so um but i think there's certainly some more darker things that they they sort of touched on but I think they missed out in a lot of it about the whole, yeah, the increase in suicide rates um, and, and the social dysmorphia mark and that yep. sort of Snapchat yep. dysmorphia, all that sort of thing, where people look at all the posts of the beautiful people online and on these um, apps and, and think, why am I not looking like that or behaving like that or have the the mansion and the cars and the and and I'm, I'm not a YouTube, um, you know. Um, um, hero and 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 make millions of dollars just by um, just so supposedly making a video, you know, once a day. Um, and yeah, so I I think there's a real distortion there, isn't there? That people, some people, 
or a fair, fair number of people, I think, don't realise um, that's happening and, it, and it's, it is a negative thing. Um, I'm trying to think what, what positive things well, I think this. I, I definitely, you know, I had a, 11 years ago, I had a big grieving event in in my life and uh, and, um, and I know that social media helped me get through that grief. I, I definitely found it a positive connection um, at that time. And so I do think, like most tools uh, in life, whether it's the TV or most new inventions, there are there are positives and negatives. Um, I just think I'm just very worried that there's more negatives than positives about uh, about social media at the moment. And um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a matter of promoting the positive aspects of it and and um, promoting ways of dealing with it and and um, learning techniques not to not to develop that sort of addiction or whatever. I suppose whether it's you know, limiting yourself and having apps and that that limit you to certain time periods for and using that's them. That's precisely what I've done. I've switched those. Um, my Apple devices have are all connected um, across the iCloud, and they have they warn me if I've you know I've set various boy. if I go beyond fifteen minutes with this app, or um, I've set them fairly low, and um, and surprisingly, it, it's been reasonably effective at um, cutting down the amount of time I spend on them. So um, I'm pretty pleased, but I don't know that um, that it's going to work for everyone. And I think the worldwide solution has to come from the companies themselves. They have to, um, and I don't think they'll change until the you know, money changes, until they stop making gazillions of dollars out of eyeballs on their platform. Um, and at that whole, you know, the whole thing about Google in Australia at the moment that um, that uh, the Australian government relatively clumsily is arguing for um, uh, payment from the from Google to the media companies because Google benefits from those products, um, but Google's just playing, you know, the gigantic uh, worldwide monolithic monopoly. No, we're not going to play that game. Um, and until they, you know, until they stop making gazillions of dollars out of it, um, then they're going to keep doing it the way they're doing it, whether it's good or bad. So what do you score this, Mark? Well, I, I'm not going to give it a score right? because I think it's a point on a graph more than anything else. I don't think it offers any concrete <laughs> solutions. It's just like one of those you know, um, uh, just presents this is the problem and it doesn't sort of lead a way forward. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm holding, I think it's going to be part of a series, shall we say, and I'll wait okay. until we've seen the whole lot and then I'll give you a score. He refuses to give it a rating is what I'll put in a show notes, Mark. That's what's been put in there and it's, um, I've saved it. <laughs> well, there you go. We have another, we have, well, we have a, um, a film, a, a non-documentary film to review next time, don't we, Mark, that we've both watched? I'm looking forward to that one too. Yes, that should be good. Okay, well, let's jump into news stories. I have one and only, Mark, and it's about Operation Giraffe Raft, of course, and um, thank you to our um, our news reporters. Um, and it's about flooding in where was it, Mark, in Kenya, was it? Oh, dear, I've, I've flicked through this, but I've got to um, refresh myself there. Yep. Uh, let's have a yes. <clears throat> yes, it was in it. Yes. So a community constructed a giraffe raft in order to ferry giraffes across a lake to higher ground because they were concerned about the shrinking island in the middle of a flooding lake, Mark. And interestingly enough, the lake, Lake Baringo in Kenya, wasn't always an island and it was a peninsula. And they took the took uh, they placed giraffes there in 2011 because they believed it was a, neat, a good place for them and danger-free for them. Um, and they were doing well. They travelled by river, by boat um, to, to put them there. Um, but with flooding on the horizon now, they've decided that they need to get them off there so they constructed this and it it's a 
well, there's a picture of it. It's not the most complex structure <laughs> available, is it? Is is my kindest way of say, saying it? Um, they constructed a, a, a raft made of, um, well, basically it's just barrels, wasn't it, and a bit of bamboo or something um, tied together with some um, some tarpaulin around the sides, and they sedated um, one of the giraffes. Um, the the female. This was Rothschild's giraffes, which are an endangered species, uh, and they got them used to sort of looking at the um, um, the raft. And they selected an adult female. And they covered her eyes and sedated her, and it was a success march. Mark they put put her on the barge and they floated floated it, which was yeah, just empty drums. And reinforced sides, it said um, in the article, mate. And um, she's been transported off the um, off the little um, shrinking island. I did like yes. the um, the quote that the rectangular steel structure was designed and built specifically to carry tall, heavy giraffes. It just, yeah, I don't. It may well that may well have been the case, but I don't think a lot of time went into that design. I think they just pretty much went. We've got to have a big square flat platform for them to stand on. With it's got to float, so some barrels underneath, and then yes. a steel frame with some canvas and we'll and another little bit of canvas up the top there in case they need to cover from the top. Um, yes, but it worked. I thought that was a sail. <laughs> Perhaps it is. <laughs> that's how, no, that's how it got across. No, you can see some ropes attached to it, so they've obviously um, the towing it. Well, it is a bar. They've mentioned it as a as a barge. Um, let's see what happens with the rest of the um, giraffes. But uh, do they mention how many more giraffes they need to bring over? No, because it looks like it, it's only one giraffe at a time for this barge. So it might take a fair while. Let's hope. Mark, that the island doesn't shrink completely or flood before they've managed to transport all the giraffes with Operation Giraffe Raft, Mark, it's called. Uh, perhaps they <laughs> could have chosen something a little bit. Um, Look, I think they, they're doers, Brendan. I think <laughs> they just, they're, they're not thinking they're a not, lot about planning, design, they're names. Not poets, they're doers. That's right, they're doers. Exactly. And it looks exactly. like they're getting it done. There's eight. They've got to get eight in danger. Oh, they'll get there. Well done. They'll do. They'll do well. Fantastic. Yes, it's a positive story, Mark. I shouldn't be. Um, shouldn't be laughing. It's they a positive it. story. But, but I had to laugh when I saw the look of the the barge or the raft there. And we'll have a link to that at vetgurus.com under our show notes. What have you got, Mark? I've got. Um, well, your story was uplifting, even though. The- the way you framed it might not have come across that way, but um, my, my one's not quite as uplifting. It's the story of um, a, an article in the journal Molecular uh, – Molecular – oh, I just had it in front of me, Brandon, Molecular Ecology. Oh, sure. Molecular yes. Ecology. And, um, and the article talks about um, uh, oddly – Coloured the spotted and striped zebras um, that um, abnormal coat patterns seem to be on the rise in um, some of the wild populations of um, of Africans uh, wild equid and um, and I'm, and when I first saw this I thought oh, look because the story suggests that um, these colour mutations are, are genetically induced and um, they're the result of, uh, of altered deposition of melanin um, and that um, that they're finding an unusually high number, maybe 5% uh, they estimated of plains zebras in one particular population in Uganda were abnormally striped. And I thought, look, they blamed in this article the um, inbreeding um, and I thought that, you know, this could well be like a multifactorial thing that maybe inbreeding might not be the, um, you know, the simple answer. But it does look like, as I've looked at the article, it does look like uh, the genetic analyses of the um, of the plain zebras, the, the unusual coat patterned ones um, from nine locations across Africa and another 131 uh, normally um, coloured ones 
Um, they certainly found um, suggestions in the genetic analysis that uh, that those that came from smaller, more isolated populations with lower genetic diversity um, produced were much more likely to produce those abnormally coloured zebras, um, strongly suggesting that the genetic mutations are at least related to their poor genetic diversity. Um, so, um, and that, it's very interesting too. They talked in this um, this article that um, maybe the you know the the populations being gradually separated that connections between them you know populations now being isolated to national parks and not having those massive pathways all the way across africa where they could link and exchange genetic material um that that may well be a sign that the 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 um human pressure is isolating islands of genetic material and some of them are faring less well than others. Um, it was, was, you know, it's sort of sad in a way, Brendan, because it's uh, evidence of damage that's being done. And these plain zebras, they're not, you know, threatened in the wild. They're not endangered in any way. Um, but to see um, genetic mutations turn up at this rate certainly suggests that we we might see problems in the future even with species as secure as these ones so i suppose that was the you know my my the downer on it for me was that um even for species that are are going okay um things may end up affecting them making them vulnerable and and eventually um leading to population declines which may lead to them being endangered threatened or even extinct Yes, it's an interesting article and, as usual, very beautifully illustrated with the photos selected there. It's from National Geographic and they always very well good production for those. I just found another couple of interesting um, sentences or points in there, Mark. Um, the, the obvious one that they sort of chatted about that it, it's possible the odd stripes could make the zebras more obvious to predators um, because they recorded most instances of polka dot dotted zebras only as foals, not as adults. Um, but the thing that I found interesting, the next sentence, um, zebras don't mind much zebras don't much seem to mind who's striped and who's spotted so good on them they're not um they're not racist are they the old um, zebras it's great well there um, was a, the other thing but, was that we did a uh, we yes, reviewed an article which, about the purpose of the stripes and yes, um, which which you've you've stolen my thunder go, go for it. <laughs> deliver the, deliver the no. crack we're on the we're on the same wavelength there. Yes, the latest research suggests zebra stripes help the animals avoid biting flies, and that's the reason why it sort of evolved that way. And we we did report on that. I can't remember what episode number it is, but you can go to vetgurus.com and search for it. So, yes, quite interesting. Um, and some of the well, what a couple, I think the first one they had was almost like a a blotch, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Almost amelanistic. Or, um, um, they seem to run the full gambit, you know, some from uh, who are hypermelanistic that are yes. really black all the way through to, you know, those caramelised, um, very, very pale individuals. Um, yeah, it, it's, the, as you said, the photos in National Geographic were excellent uh, ancillary um, aids to understanding the article. Yes, definitely. So we'll link to that and um, a good, goodish sort of news story, maybe, maybe not. Um, a worrisome news story, I suppose. <laughs> well, let's jump into our main topic, Mark, before we have to finish. And that's this is a tricky one, isn't it? And I've, I've, I've felt I've, this from the time you suggested I went, this is yeah. going to be tricky. And that's why we haven't covered it before, I think. It's one that we might end up going over several several podcasts. And that's bloat in rabbits, the condition or the syndrome of bloat in a pet rabbit. So I think we'll just sort of chat generally about it, um, not just 
because we haven't really got much of an agenda sorted for this. Um, <laughs> but more, more uh, than I, th- I have I think not it, much of an idea about it. I think it's going to wander around a little bit, this one. But, yeah, so the, the, let's just generally talk about bloat itself in rabbits and the signs of it and the obvious signs that we see with these rabbits. It's an acute onset typically, typically, although I'm going to um, – Go against that in a sec. Um, and that's our, our rabbit with the enlarged abdomen, especially the cranial abdomen, because the vast majority of these, it's a bloated stomach in them. So it's a rabbit that's about to pop, isn't it, Mark? It's a rabbit that's about to burst. And I think it's very analogous to what we see or what we're taught with gastric dilatation and volvulus as far as dogs and that it's an emergency for them. Would you agree with that, Mark? I don't think you've said anything controversial yet, Brendan. But and and I would add um, that just like I don't, I, well, I've got a couple of questions for you since you've started so um, uh, so calmly and and without making any uh, uh, huge dramatic statements. I I think. When I'm talking to colleagues about this, I think the outstanding thing is timpani. They they do seem drum-like, um, and that does, as you have said, um, make it analogous to the dilation situation in in our um, dogs. But I don't know. I, do you ever see any of them end up with volvulus? I I have not. No, no, um, no. So let's drop that out of the discussion straight off. <laughs> yes. So they're about to die on us. Uh, I think that's the important bit with those <laughs> those classic ones, and often they will die. Um, so my warning to the client with these, if they're presented as a tympanic about to burst rabbit, is they're vastly compromised and analogous to the gastric dilatation in our dogs. Um, it, that's because of all the similar sort of factors that go on with the pressure from that from that um, very enlarged stomach there and the pressure it puts on all the great vessels, etc., and the chest cavity, um, that, that animal's very, very, very sick. And um, the first thing I'd be doing to the client that phones up with, a, with my rabbits bloated and it, and it looks very uncomfortable is um, get it to a vet clinic ASAP. Um, We'll talk about the treatment bits in a second, the things to do and things not to do or and the general recommendations regarding that, and there's a little bit of controversy there. But the difficulty is uh, that we can have a rabbit that's in our gastrointestinal stasis, our gut stasis, um, that develops a partial enlargement of the abdomen there and a partial bloat so traditionally i don't know about you mark but traditionally um we are taught or we teach um that there's the two sort of separate syndromes and we compare and contrast them the, the gi stasis gut stasis um which is usually very good outlook and it's a medical therapy um predominantly and and we contrast that with our our bloat which is a surgical therapy and most of them die um, even even with the surgery so we're the, the the complete opposite but there's a big there's a big region in between especially with this those gi stasis ones that aren't responding very well and they do start to get a bit of a bit of bloat in there a bit of excess gas in there and then we we start to think is this one that is going to go on to a full full blown bloat or is it a gi stasis one that we just keep treating as a gut stasis that will respond medically um and they can be a real challenge mark so um have you got any comment on that um only that i profoundly agree i think um a lot of the sort of traditional textbooks or um, uh, conference proceedings do make that dichotomy maybe maybe overly aggressively so that people coming to this topic for the first time are not comfortable with those grey cases. They're looking for the clear gut stasis rabbit versus the um, versus the clear case of, uh, of gastric dilation slash bloat and and as you highlighted um there are they are just extremes of a spectrum um and uh and i think you do have to be a little bit um 
uh, sensitive to the fact that you're, you're often going to be left in that grey zone in the middle and have to make uh, wise decisions in your clinical judgment. Yes, yeah, so we might, we'll leave that grey zone for another time and I think we'll cover that as part of the GI stasis um, when we do another follow-up with that one. So let's assume we have this very bloated rabbit presented to us, Mark. Um, what do you do? Well, the first thing I do is exactly what you suggested before. I exercise all speed because it is a um, it's an emergency, whichever way you plan to treat it. Um, and I communicate very, very well with the clients about the risks, um, considerable risks associated with this condition. Um, even with everything done perfectly, um, there are there is distinct po- the distinct possibility that um, that you know reperfusion injury or whatever complication cardiac complication that arises from these gastric changes that they are going to prevent an ideal outcome. So, uh, getting everything ready really quickly. Um, and speaking well to the clients. Probably the next thing I do is get a quick image. I want a radiograph at a very, very early stage so that I can be very confident about the gas in there and I'm not confused about, you know, some of those grey cases and then move forward with the treatment very quickly from there. And how are you taking that radiograph? Conscious. Yes, yes. And usually they're pretty... They're almost moribund, aren't they? They're they're not happy-looking rabbits there, and they're not moving around too much, unfortunately. So it's usually one of the easy things of the actual whole process to take that radiograph there and confirm that 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 classic radiographic picture of a bloat in a rabbit is a is a large, very large stomach um, with a gas cap on the top, typically, isn't it, Mark? They they can present a number of ways but that's the typical one that they're um they're huge and by huge you know they're eight ten times the normal size um and they are often um contain a lot of uh um, they may well have a lot of food in them fluid in them um and the classic gas cat the the target sort of appearance um that's often talked about in the literature so the, the next curly question is, what do we do from there? And, and and I think the the first comment I would say is we don't we don't pop them, do we, Mark? We don't what do what um, sometimes the large animal vets are, are taught to do. I don't know whether they're still taught to do that with a, a tympanic cow or, or sheep, and that's um, get a trocar and shove it in there um, in the flank and release that pressure. Do you have you done that in rabbits? I have to be honest and say that um, in the very early days, shortly after I graduated, we did attempt to do that with horrible results, Brendan. I haven't done it for thirty odd years now, um, and so what's the what's the rationale between uh, f- for not doing it, Mark? What happens typically? Um, well, the overstretched stomach ruptures and leaks contents through the peritoneum and the animals die of uh, aggressive <laughs> peritonitis. Um, it doesn't just, like, uh, the stomach wall is stretched. Sorry about that, Kate, team. Kate's off for pizza again. <laughs> At least it'll be a good dinner. Um, the the um, overstretched stomach is like not just, it's it's stretch till it's tissue thin and you stick a needle in it and it doesn't just put a needle hole in it it splits open um like a balloon and uh and yeah my experience is those rabbits quickly die of uh of um an uh, a gastric rupture leading to peritonitis um the other thing is i don't think you know even if you can't get this stuff out brendan it's not you the gas cap is relatively small. The contents of the the uh, the enlarged stomach do have some suspended food in there, chewed up bits of plant material, and um, even with a relatively large trocar, you can't get the, the the stuff out that way. It just doesn't help the rabbit and often kills them. So don't do it. Yes. So. We don't do that. So what do we try and do? Well, I and I have had rare success with trying to 
decompensate a bit, so re- decompress a bit um, via a large bore stomach tube, Mark, and and it's rare rare that I've had success with it. And the reason why it's I find it difficult, and I think most people find it difficult, is because how thick that ingester is, and we're we're, we're trying to remove what. The rabbit has eaten, which is obviously hay and veggies usually. Um, so it's really thick, viscous material. Um, so typically, what I do with these, Mark, after I've told the client that, yeah, your rabbit will probably die, um, admit it. Um, I'll give it some, a, and we won't talk about specific dose rates, but I will give it um, a little bit of an opiate um, to take some pain off that animal and, and perhaps provide a slight sedation there. And I will attempt um, for a short period of time to um, pass a stomach tube mark with that animal slightly sedated, um, with the head raised and, and getting a fairly large bore tube um, down the esophagus there into the stomach. And if I'm very lucky, I will release that little bit of gas that's there and, and potentially be able to flush out some of that ingester. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't work, in my experience anyway, and I'll be interested to hear what you say. Um, very often and the aim is to just release it make it a little bit more stable um still very unstable and then take it to surgery um have you had any success with tube in the market uh, unsurprisingly um my experience pretty much mirrors yours i've i have routinely attempted it um i have had a couple of cases that have been dilations all of gas um so the the stomach is literally bloated up with gas um and those ones i do you know i make an extra extra effort to get the tube in and the ones that i do that i'm able to get a a stomach tube in obviously you make a big difference when they're full of gas but um i i do worry that vigorous use of stomach tubes in you know whether it's a needle through the abdominal wall or a stomach tube just stretching the the gastric wall from the inside, um, those things are likely to be equally bad for the overly stretched gastric wall. And, and I do worry that um, that if I can't do it quickly and it's not all gas, then, and then I make only modest attempts to get it done and move on to surgery. Yes, so surgery, uh, well, that's a challenge, isn't it, Mark? It's... My thoughts with these ones, my typical thoughts with these um, emergency cases is get in there quick, try and get it done and get out quick. Um, that's what I usually like to try and do. But um, It's your surgical nature to be, like, fast. Get it done. <laughs> do it quick. Get it done. It is. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, an eth- it's well, it's like, you know, getting a drip into them, hopefully. Um getting them on the table quick uh, with your uh, inducing them with a injectable um, a sh- short acting injectable getting them on the table and um, making a very careful incision there um, in the cranial abdominal um, linear alba sort of line um, hoping that you don't pop them and um, exterior I'm um, having a bit of a look inside and seeing what's happening there and, and, and typically you will need to then I ideally try and put a couple of stay sutures on there, Mark, um, and um, and then um, release some pressure there, or use a put some stay sutures in there and um, use an, a needle and syringe, Mark, to release some of the pressure if I think there's a lot of gas in there. Um, I find most of the ones that I've done, um, there is a, a blockage and obstruction at either the pylorus or the proximal or the duodenum um, and that's where typically the obstruction is and and like dog at any any animal where you have a have a an obstruction there um, some of these fairly quickly can end up with a necrotic region of tissue there and if we do have a necrotic region of tissue in that sort of pyloric region or duodenal region it can be an absolute disaster and i stop pretty quickly and decide that it's not worth trying to fix things um i've never had an attempted anastomosis work in a rabbit i'm the same mm-hmm. as you i think um once you get to the point where there's necrotic 
um, intestine, particularly that duodenum, if there's a decent obstruction and uh, and it's become necrotic, then that's a good indication to stop surgery and perform humane euthanasia. Yes, and if we're and we're being pretty simplistic here with the the approach, we're just looking at some of the key factors. If if we're lucky enough to decompress there and and identify the obstruction and it's not in a necrotic area there's, there's a couple of thoughts there mark isn't there if there's an obstruction like um, past the stomach there that you can use the, the toothpaste technique mark um, has, has, has come back um, and there's actually papers written on massage in potential obstructions further down the intestinal tract um, in the hope that if you get them past that initial sort of narrowing uh, just past the stomach that that will manage to work its way through the rest of the um, intestinal tract. I must admit that I'm sort of at the latter and that I prefer to, to, to um, physically remove it, um, surgically remove it um, rather than massage it through. But there are some surgeons that um, are very keen on the the massage or the toothpaste technique as you know i like to call it of massaging the obstruction um through um and avoiding incising over the duodenum area or further and only having an incision over the uh, into the stomach to relieve the to remove the ingester and or the gas um any comments on that, Matt? Well, my worry with those, um, like I've read those same papers as you, Brendan, and my worry has always been that there are two narrow parts to the rabbit's intestine. The first one is in the duodenum, and you know you will uh, that will be a location that you can get into trouble. And but the ileocecal junction also has a bit of a narrowing, a bit of a, a um, stricture, and so anything that you squeeze through the duodenum, I always worry is going to cause problems further down, particularly if it's an indigestible mass. Um, so I'm a bit like you. If it's up in the duodenum, if it's in the stomach and we can identify those foreign bodies, then I tend to be keen to um, make the incision and open them up there. I have not had great success massaging them through, Brendan. Funnily enough, we agree on, on that as well. And uh, I'd be, and I've had a chat to some surgeons who are, admittedly much better surgeons than I am who have had good success with that massaging technique. But I think you need to pick the cases and um, I suppose the next step or comment that we need to chat about is, um, you know, what are the obstructions, Mark? What, what, is, what do you typically find is causing this bloat? What is stuck? Well, the, 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 I, once again, I have to tell a story because I think it relates to um, um, some of the cases that uh, – you know, we would be talking about um, almost all the geostasis rabbits when I first graduated um, had furballs, had a gastric obstruction due to um, a, a bezoar, a trichobezoar. And, um, and I still think that I'm embarrassed to admit that we treated them with um, pineapple juice and and prokinetics and whatnot, and probably didn't help them a lot. Um, but I think that um, that trichobezoars form a significant proportion of the the foreign bodies that um, that end up causing uh, bloat. They're not nearly as frequent as uh, we thought when I was a relatively recent graduate. But that's one of the common things that we do see cause problems for us. Um, those. Uh, ingester pellets of ingester that are predominantly hair, particularly, you know, around the time that rabbits are shedding um, the long-haired breeds, um, coupled with a bit of altered gastrointestinal motility, and then you've got a furball that's big enough to cause problems. I agree. That's what I tend to find with those ones. So prevention, Mark, you've sort of touched on that, haven't you? Before we How shoot to prevent prevention, do you? Yes. I, there is a subset of them, Brendan, that I see um, that are foreign bodies, uh, particularly as house rabbits have become more, um, much more uh, common for us over the last decade. Um, uh, there's a subset of rabbits that have genuine foreign bodies that um, find 
you know, uh, large staples and ingest them, uh, that um, a number of um, household items that they might find that are indigestible that end up causing problems. Have you seen those ones? Of sta- of staples and those sorts of just weird yeah, and wonderful weird things. Wonderful ones. They seem to be on the rise in, in our practice. Um, not that I can recall in my poor memory, Mark, no. Um, majority of the ones that I've seen of those, those wads. Certainly that's those the majority still, wads, you know, yeah. more than 80 or 90% of them are wads. Yes, yes. Um, prevention. Well... We, we alluded to it before, didn't we, that um, the fact that uh, many of our um, domestic rabbit breeds have an abundance of fur um, and, uh, and, and they're, they're difficult to groom. Um, and if they're kept on their own, you know, rabbits will depend on their cohorts to help them with the difficult parts of their body. And if they're on their own, they definitely won't groom themselves completely um and uh and you know us people have busy lives we can't spend a couple of hours a day grooming the rabbits um clipping them off is sometimes an important thing to think about and i know it worries lots of people um in our practice we have to it's one of the things that um you know we we sometimes struggle to get people to do because they don't see it as as a um, as, as a serious problem, um, but I think um, controlling the amount of fur that the rabbit ingests by whatever measure um, is the critical thing. Yes. Prevention, prevention, prevention of these, but it, it's quite distressing seeing these rabbits, isn't it, Mark? And, yeah, I wish I I wish I had the golden touch to be able to save them, but um, the vast majority of these that I've seen with the classic Tympanic about to pop rabbits end up dying. And I don't think you're alone there, Brendan. I think that's for all of us that uh, see these guys. Um, now that we can divide them up into the the into a bit of a category, those genuine uh, bloat rabbits, dilation rabbits with uh, potentially an obstruction, um, they they are the prognosis for them is very very guarded. Well, on that cheery note, Mark, I think we will get Mr. Outro and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.